This episode of the Joan and Carey Podcast is brought to you by FanDuel. It's fantasy football for everyday fans. you got new contests starting every week. No busted season. Something for everyone with lots of contests to choose from starting at just a buck. Pick a contest, choose your team, and watch your score real time. More than 2.5 million players have won a cash prize playing fantasy sports on FanDuel. Very, very easy to do. You just go to FanDuel.com, click the Join Now button, and use the promo code Jonah. Again, that's FanDuel.com. Click the Join Now button and use the promo code Jonah. Thank you to FanDuel for sponsoring the podcast. And this episode of the Jonah Carey Podcast is with Mike Duncan. What a pleasure to meet Mike. Uh, we actually have a mutual friend, which is Dr. Ranny Gisarelli. Ranny is a uh, dermatologist and a very successful one, but he's also an old friend, an alum of Baseball Prospectus in Grantland. Uh, we like to describe ourselves as doppelgangers of each other. Uh, great human being. He introduced us and we ended up doing this podcast in his dermatology office in Oak Park, Illinois, which was a lot of fun. Uh, as for Mike, a very accomplished podcaster, award-winning podcaster, uh, his Roman history podcast, The History of Rome, terrific. His new podcast is called The Revolutions Podcast. It talks about re revolutions throughout history. But more importantly, and what we really focused on is Mike's book, which is called The Storm Before the Storm. What a cool book. It basically deals with an era of uh, Roman history. It's about 70 years uh, before everything went down. You, you might know Julius Caesar and uh, Cleopatra and all that kind of more famous Roman history stuff. This is everything that happened just before that that kind of set the stage. It was the beginning of the end of the end of the Roman Empire in a sense. Really, really fascinating. And Mike and I got into it. So if you're a fan of Roman history, you will dig this. And if you're just a fan of good storytelling, you will definitely dig this. Pick up The Storm Before the Storm. You could pre-order it. Uh, support your local indie bookstore if you can. Or you can pre-order on Powells.com. They're indie as well. Do it that way. And this was great. Uh, Mike also a Seattle native. So we got into some Supersonics and Mariners talk. And it was really just a great chat. So thank you to Mike uh, for doing this. And I hope that you uh, enjoy this episode of the podcast. Very quickly, uh, what I'm doing is uh, playoff coverage, wall-to-wall -wall for CBS Sports. So you will catch me at cbssports.com, writing about lots of stuff, uh, playoff coverage pretty much every day. I'll be on video as well. Also, uh, if you like, please check out my latest column, which is about uh, – well, it started as a column about what happened to the Braves front office, a shakeup there. But it really became a, a column about uh, international market in baseball and drafts and salary caps and all the ways in which management and ownership basically exploit labor in the sports world. Uh, college sports also a big factor in that. The fact that college athletes do not get paid, uh, even though they play for sports programs, athletic programs that literally generate billions of dollars in revenue is insane. So I covered all of that in the column. Go to CBS Sports, Google me, or you can find it on Twitter as well. Uh, but yeah, I kind of tapped a vein a little bit for that column. It's a subject that's important to me. I feel like there needs to be more justice in sports, and I don't think we're there yet. And I hope we do get there at some point. All right, so go enjoy all that and go enjoy this episode of the podcast. It is with Mike Duncan. Thanks to Mike for coming on.
turn off whatever you want, Mike Duncan. We're already recording. Well, I've ambushed you. You ambushed me. I did. We're sitting in the do- in the office of Doctor Rani Jazerly, who brokered this uh, this blessed meeting. Yes, he did. A mutual friend of both baseball and uh, Roman history and uh, things of that nature. Yeah, I I leaned on him to uh, nakedly exploit his connection to you. And it worked. I'm now yes. in Oak Park, Illinois. Yeah, we're both in Oak Park, Illinois. I love it. Um, so, Mike Duncan, um, two podcasts, History of Rome and Revolutions, and also the book, which I'm going to pull up. Yeah, don't forget to plug the book. Yes, I'm going to plug the book. That is My the publicist goal. will be listening to this, and if it doesn't I hope so. the first The book, minutes, as if I'm it. showing people, as if right. people can see, there it is. is The Storm Before the Storm. And um, what I was saying to you earlier was... The nature of my education was really weird, and so I didn't get into Roman history at all. And I come in as a novice, but I'm very excited about this because it means that I get a chance to learn and listeners get a chance to learn as well. So what I want to do is ask you how it is that you became immersed in this subject. Because you're a baseball fan, you're a basketball fan, you're a sports fan. Okay, we're American males or whatever that tracks. There's certainly a lot of people that are interested in Roman history. But to go into this kind of depth and not be a professor is unusual, I think. I have unusual tastes, I think, <laughs> a little bit. Um, I've I've been into history my whole life, mm-hmm. right? Like, from the time that I was a little kid, I would read encyclopedias for fun. Like, so we had, like, the old, like, world book encyclopedia, yep. and there would be, you know, it's pre-Wikipedia days, uh, and there would be entries on the Roman Empire, the Greeks, the Inca, the Maya, like, those ancient civilizations. There's just something about them that is, like, that was really compelling to me. Yeah. Um, so I've always I've always had an interest in ancient history and a fan of history in general. And then when I went to school, I studied mostly I studied political science and I studied philosophy, which again just takes you back to the ancient world. If you, you got to learn the history of the Greeks, you got to learn the history of the Romans to understand all this stuff. Um, but then when I got out of school, the thing that I kept going with, uh, rather than you know like hardcore political science or hardcore philosophy, was the history behind everything. That was really what what grabbed onto me and what I started to do was read the ancient sources, right? Like, so Livy, I was reading Thucydides, I was reading uh, Plutarch and Polybius and there was something about it. There's something about actually reading yeah. those books. They're so dry, right? They're so impossible to read. Like if you plopped it down in front of somebody and said, here, read this Livy, they'd be like, oh, they'd fall asleep in a paragraph or two because right. it's very dry, yeah. very dry reading. Um, but for whatever reason, something with it connected with me. And there's so many great stories, right, that are buried in Livy and buried in Polybius that most people don't ever access or ever learn about because it's so dry and it's so boring, and I understand that. Um, so the, the the history of Rome was really an exercise in trying to lift those stories that had, that had been lost, really, to the <coughs> to the mass culture. Like, Particularly the ones that you focus on in the book, which we're going to get to in a minute. Yeah, and, yeah. and we'll get, and yeah. the, like, all the early Republican stuff yeah. that, like, you know, I don't cover Way before the book. Caesar. Yeah, way before stuff. Caesar. And that's yeah. the thing is, if you ask the average American or even the, just the average Westerner, you're going to, like, start telling me what you know about Roman history. They'll say Caesar. They'll say Antony and Cleopatra. They'll say Nero and Caligula. Yeah. Um, that covers about a 100-year Period. There's like one particular century that's very well covered. The other 900 uh, are not ever covered at all. So yeah. it's just like it's virgin. It was virgin territory for me, and I could I could basically just own explaining this all to people. 
did you have a grounding in Greek or Latin that allowed you? Did you read the texts in those, <laughs> or did you just read it translated? No, I know I famously do not have a grounding in uh, Greek or Latin. Yeah. I, I've I've picked up a lot of Latin, you know, in the process. Yeah, sure. But I was I was you know it's uh you know the Penguin Classics is what I was living out of, and I very famously have some. Uh, it's a very horrible pronunciation faux pas <laughs> that I have made. It's partly my hashtag brand to. Uh, <laughs> To mispronounce Latin and now French, I mispronounce French and I mispronounce Spanish and I mispronounce German and Hungarian. I'm I'm now mispronouncing Hungarian, which is fun. Uh, I do speak a little bit. Of Hungarian. Do you speak a little? My bit? family. I, my dad was born Hungary, Koshut, but mostly the foods. Koshut, Koshut, Serbus, Hush Hush. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know it's. I'm mangling it. You're mangling but, it. But it's fine. Uh, no, but I, it's interesting about the Latin too because you know. First of all, the podcast precedes the book, but I also listened to chapter one of the book in the audio form before I started reading it, and uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna botch it now. Agar publicus, ah, yeah, agar publicus, agar publicus, agar publicus, public land. Yes, you know that's land. a seminal point in the beginning, and and the way that you describe in the book because you, <laughs> you can't go away from Latin; it's part of it. May have some, uh, uh, Mas maior. Mas maior, yes. Mas maior. Mas maior. These are important terms to know, and there's no way around it. But you most, s- most maior. <laughs> See, I just did it again. <laughs> I just did it again. I'm glad. Oh, it's amazing. You have this way of making it into a colloquial style that people can understand. And, and so I find that fascinating. I mean, did you, when you're approaching the podcast and the book, I assume that you're assuming very little knowledge on the part of the reader. Not cond- not a condescending way, but you're like, okay, we need to understand what most Maori is, and we need to understand these basic points before we can go anywhere. Yeah, my assumption with any series that I do, and then certainly with the book, is that you would be able to pick this up knowing nothing. Yeah. Right, from episode Mission one. Mission accomplished! Yeah, from page, <laughs> yeah, from page one. Yeah. Uh, and I spend a lot of time uh, laying the groundwork uh, so that people can understand. And I do assume that you know nothing. Yeah. Um, you know, we get, we get into later, like in the Revolutions podcast, you know, you get into later stuff, and I refer back to the French Revolution. But if you started Revolutions at episode <coughs> one, you start the history of Rome at episode one, yeah, you don't have to know anything. So, I mean, I don't know how old you are, but when you came out of college, you said you've been doing your podcast, the two podcasts for 10 years. What were you doing right off? Were you writing history papers? Were you trying to become a writer? What were, what was the, uh, we talked about it a little bit off, off camera, off air, but, uh, you didn't jump into this medium right away, nor did you jump into the book medium right away. No, I was trying, you know, when I was, when I went to college, I, I think I was aiming, I was aiming to be a fiction writer. Yeah. And, uh, like we were talking about that the reason, uh, I got into studying political science and philosophy and history was that. So I would have interesting things to write about uh, in my fiction. Because this was also, like, this was right around the era when, like, the memoir was becoming, like, a real big genre. Um, Like, in the late 90s and early 2000s, where everybody in the English department was getting ready to write their memoir. Like, I mean, we're we're 20. Like, why are you writing a memoir? (laughs) I don't understand what what this trend is in in literature. Like, come on now. Um, so I wanted to have interesting things yeah. to write about rather than, like, myself. I didn't want to just write a book about myself. Um, but when I came out the other side of it, uh, I, I've pursued fiction writing in various, you know, forms. But it became what I was studying Yeah. On to transition it over to fiction. I just never made the transition to fiction and just started doing narrative history of what I had been teaching myself. Yeah, and then the podcasting thing was just, it was there as a new medium 
and there was an opportunity to take advantage of it and play around with it, and it was there. Was that a, a lower bar than trying to write a 500-page book about Rome? Was it just, oh, I'm going to try this and see what happens? Or was it just the podcasting medium itself became interesting to you, and you just said, I'm going to make this the conduit because podcasting sounds cool? Yeah, that's really what it was. Yeah. It was it's one of those things where uh, I'm, I'm one of those people where if I if I see, like, a great movie or I hear, like, a great album, I'm like, oh, I want to make a great album like that. Or And I had, I had heard some great podcasts. You know, podcasting has been around for a long time, but this is back in, like, 2006, yeah, 2007. So, what were you listening to? What were your podcasting influences at that point? The the big one uh, is Twelve Byzantine Rulers by Lars Brownworth. That's you know that's the one that I listened to that was like this is this is a great format. This is great. Like there's something here. And then you know I've told this story other places too that I was I was uh, I was reading Livy and Polybius and all this stuff and I went <coughs> I went looking for the Roman history podcast mm-hmm. right. I went looking for that to supplement and it didn't it didn't exist yeah so this is when like now like the little you know the tumblers are clicking into place <laughs> or whatever like the hamsters that run your brain are like talking to each other and they're like hey you have all this stuff that you know and like there's no roman history podcast and your wife just bought a new computer and it's got you know it's got audio software and it's got a, you've got a microphone yeah um, because you're a busted you know you're a busted musician but you still got the you still got the microphone nice uh, so i plugged it in and started and there's no barrier to entry, right? You just load it up, yes. and it goes on iTunes, right? Yes. There's you need GarageBand or whatever. Yeah, I had, yeah, I had GarageBand and a microphone, yeah. and I Googled how to podcast, yeah. and that was it. If I had tried to pitch the history of Rome, like to an editor or to uh, a station manager at a radio station, like if I had been born like 20 years ago, yeah, like 20 years earlier than I had been, um, like nobody would have said yes. No. To hey, I'm going to very sedately narrate. A uh, 189 episode long story of the Roman Empire, and they'd be like, "Well, do you have a PhD in the classics?" I mean, no. <laughs> you know, are you are you fluent in Latin? No, not really. Um, and they and they would have rightly said, "Like, get out of here, kid! You know, come right. back with something that actually is going to work." Uh, but luckily, there were no barriers, so I was able to just throw it out there and have people start listening to it, and it took on a life of its own. I want to discuss the actual events of ancient Rome shortly, but I'm just curious: how did you decide? That the format, did you know it was going to be 189 episodes? Did you know how long, (laughs) did you know what you were going to narrate within the course of of an episode? Or like, when were you going to stop? Um, I thought, when when I started going through, there was was no like episode limit. I hadn't really done a major, I hadn't really done a major projection. I was just like, I'm just going to start going through this. But I did some math after like 20 or 30 episodes, just like, okay, here's how many years I seem to be getting through in a given episode. Um. This will probably run like seventy-five episodes, right? right? This is, and I'll I'll be done with it like eighteen months, two years, and that's great. And then I'll move on. And what happened <laughs> is I got to the consulship of Julius Caesar, uh, and when I got to the consulship of Julius Caesar, that single year took me an entire episode to get through. And then the next episode after that, I was like, I made it like six months. Because um, I'm really, I'm just, I'm writing a transcript, so I would just write until I hit, like, a word count. Right. Uh, you know, find a dramatic break um, and start the next episode. And I'm like, oh, my God, this thing is slowed to a crawl. <laughs> like, I'm never, I'm never going to get out of this. And then I spent three years with people asking me, like, oh, when are you going to be done? And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> never. I'm never going to be done. Like, That's I'm kind just, of backhanded echo. I'm going I'm I'm to write this freaking Roman history <laughs> podcast forever. And in the end, it was five years is how long it took well, me to do it. Well, if you had gone to 1453, you never would have. No, if, yes, if I had kept going uh, to the Byzantines, I would still, I would still be doing it. I made, it, I made the right decision to, uh, 
I'm not sure if the, if the microphone picked up, Doctor. You might have been outside the room, but we we dapped you at the beginning. Doctor Gisarelli is sitting with us. Yes, Doctor well. Gisarelli is a is a longtime fan of both the history of Rome and revolutions, which is how we came together yes. are eating Giordano's as we speak. Yes. So you go through the five the five years of your show and the centuries of Roman history, and we'll circle back to revolutions in a minute. But I want to stay on the Roman track for a minute. And the book ends up being about really the period from. One four, correct me if I'm wrong, 146 B.C. to 78 B.C. Yeah, much. that's exactly correct. Okay, so that's a very specific period. And again, there's no Caesar, there's no Cleopatra. This is very specific. I didn't know Tiberius Gracchus's name. Again, I don't have any grounding in this stuff, but I feel like a lot of people would not. And, and a lot of the characters are very vivid characters, but are not heavily documented. Was it just that? Was it just the way I'm going to get into this thing is to tell a story that's relatively obscure but really interesting? Did you feel that that was more marketable than taking another shot at Caesar? Or what, what was the thought process behind, this is what I want to focus on? Well, there's there's two sides to it yeah. that, that made the book, like, this is this is the thing that I want to that I want to write. Um, and definitely a big part of it is, again, I, I sort of my bread and butter is going after periods in history that have been neglected yep. by the areas, like, not just doing the same notes that people get all the time. So and I actually wrote this in the book proposal, right? There's there's a book about Caesar, like, every couple of years. Yeah. There's books about Pompey. There's books about Cleopatra. There's TV shows about these people, mm-hmm. right? Like, this is really well-trod um, territory. And I just want to pull it back, like, two generations. Nobody, like, we went through the book list. We went through, like, the back catalog of, like, every published book we could find to see if anybody you know, in the last hundred years or more has ever written wow. this particular book. And this particular book has never been written. Hmm. Um, I, no, that's not true. There was one guy in like 1910 um, who wrote a book called The Gracchi, Marius, and Sulla. But uh, that's a dead ball era. That yeah, that's, that's a dead ball era. Yeah, it was, the history wasn't integrated at that point, right? We can't even, you don't even want to count <laughs> it. Um, but so so this particular book really didn't exist where the this would maybe be folded in as like the first, like everything I wrote about might be a chapter or two in a larger, you know, book about Roman history, but really focusing on this era, it had never been done. Um, so that was really exciting because it's great stuff. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's great. It's wonder, It's wonderful material. It's like super easy for me as the writer to just be like, well, the material is amazing. So I just have to say it right and it'll work out. Um, but then the other thing is, when I was writing the history of Rome, you would con- I would constantly get peppered with that question of, like, is America Rome? Right. Are we the next Rome? Like, are we following <coughs> a similar historical trajectory to Rome? And, like, you know, the historian in you is like, that's not actually how it works. You know, this isn't like Battlestar Galactica. It's not, we're not <laughs> literally reliving the same history over and over again with different clothes. Right. Um, but when, you know, once the show was over and uh, I, I started playing around with it and was like, okay, well, if let's entertain this, right? Like, if, if we are in fact around, like, is it the beginning when, you know, we, we, we're colonizing or Rome is being founded? Like, no, we're way past that. Yeah. Are, are we growing as a regional power? No, we've grown as a regional power. Have we exploded as the dominant hyperpower of, you know, of the, the age in which we live? Like, yeah, I would say so. You know, World War One, World War Two, the Cold War. You know, America's America's the big, the big mother. Um, have we gotten to the point where then the republic has collapsed and we've been taken over by dictators? And no, I mean, 
yeah, I mean, hysterical commentators everywhere will be like, oh, this guy's a dictator, that guy's yeah. a dictator. Um, but, you know, we haven't, no, the republic has not fallen yet. Yes. So now you say to yourself, okay, well, we must then be somewhere between <clears throat> the great wars of conquest and the fall of the republic. And where does that land you? That lands you right here in the 130s, 120s, 110s, the age of the Gracchi. And then you dig into it, and it's like, oh, I see. We have, like, rampant, growing economic inequality, and we have uh, factional partisanship, and we have, you know, violence is starting to be introduced as a, as a political tactic. Uh, you know, armies are starting... We're, we're losing the connection between... You know, it, the United States and Rome both used to be founded on, like, a citizen army. Where yes. Have citizen conscript army, and then you would go off and fight a war, and then those people would all return to the citizen population to move on with their lives. And, um, you know, we don't do that in the United States anymore. We now have a professional army that has is becoming separate. And increasingly, you have, especially with military families, you have the kids of military families going into the military, following their fathers, following their mothers, and the civilian population not having their kids go into the military. We are actually having a bit of a divergence right now in the United States that is worth taking a look at, um, where moving away from the draft has isolated the army and the military families from the civilian population, and that is something that starts to happen with Rome. So all of that stuff, you mash all that together, and then you add that to the fact that it's just an inherently fascinating period of history. And it's like, I'm going to sit down, and I'm going to write, I'm going to write this, whatever, 50, 60-year period of history. Sponsoring the Jonah Carey Podcast this week is MeUndies. MeUndies, terrific, terrific, comfortable underwear. I have many pairs of MeUndies underwear at this point. It's great. It's absolutely super comfortable. Looks really slick. Uh, terrific. Listen, our underwear drawers, all of us, probably pretty lousy at this point. Probably in need of some sort of update. And MeUndies is terrific. It's the most comfortable pair of underwear that you will own, made from a sustainably sourced, naturally soft fabric that is three times softer than cotton. I would like to know how they measured that, but that sounds awesome. Uh, it's ultimate feel-good undies that you will definitely enjoy. 100% satisfaction guarantee. They guarantee that you will love your undies or your money back. And right now, MeUndies has an exclusive offer. You can get 20% off your first pair and free shipping. Here's how it works. You go to MeUndies.com slash JKP. That's MeUndies, M-E-U-N-D-I-E-S dot com slash JKP, as in Jonah Carey Podcast. And you can get 20% off of your first pair with free shipping and the 100% satisfaction guarantee. What could you possibly have to lose? They are terrific. Get into it. Me undies, you will dig the underwear that they have to offer. It is excellent, and I approve and endorse this product. And also sponsoring this week's podcast is FanDuel. FanDuel, fantastic. It's fantasy football for everyday fans. New contests starting every week. You know this. No busted season. Something for everybody. It's a lot of contests to choose from starting at just a buck. You pick a contest, choose your team, and watch your score real time. Again, we're in fantasy football season, but FanDuel is great for fantasy basketball. If you're into that, that season will start up soon. You can play fantasy hockey, whatever you could possibly imagine. More than 2.5 million players have won a cash prize playing fantasy sports on FanDuel. Very, very easy to sign up. FanDuel.com, F-A-N-D-U-E-L.com. Click the Join Now button and use the promo code JONAH. New users get free entry into the NFL Sunday Million with more than $1 million in cash prizes when you make your first deposit on FanDuel. Very easy. You go to FanDuel.com, sign up with promo code Jonah, and off you go on to your fantasy sports adventure. Jonah! 
let's circle back to the military point then, and we can, you know, draw, try to draw parallels here. In Rome at the time, if you served in the military, was it could be a form of glory. So if not if you were a foot soldier, but if you were leading the battle, you would get the... Um, and you would go back into t- Rome, and everybody would say, "Hey!" And oh, you, you would have your you would have your triumph. Triumph, yes, you have, you your, have triumph. your triumph exactly. Yes. And so that was a huge thing. Obviously, there were no triumphs in modern American. Well, I mean Eisenhower, or whatever, to a certain extent, maybe Patton, but not quite the same way. Are you arguing that? Well, is it the case that military service can be its own inherent good, and people should want to do it for that reason? What would motivate people? Then or now, if they were not going to have a triumph or the equivalent of a triumph, to enlist in something that's potentially fatal and, and at the very least, you know, potentially psychologically damaging. Well, okay. So from the Roman side, yeah, uh, the Roman uh, politics and war were like inseparable from yeah. each other in a, in a major way. Like, I mean, the Romans were called the people of Mars, right? Yes. They, it was inseparable. So. From the very, very beginning, from Romulus on, uh, it was just what you did, whether you were a general or whether... And But the other thing is, of course, that there were property requirements, right? There were property requirements, but you had to be rich enough to serve in the army, right? which is quite a, is quite a bit different day. from what anybody assumes uh, a military is these days, which yeah. is old rich men sending poor young men at each other in huge waves uh, to kill each other until one side gives up and... Uh, and that side wins, and that that clique of rich old men, you know, wins the war. Uh, so that was just a part of Roman life. Uh, for the poor Romans, once Marius comes along and opens up uh, the ranks of the military to not just landed property or landowning citizens, but to the poor plebs, to people that had nothing. Then it became a path to wages, to stability, to hmm. to riches. It was the only. It was the only way somebody who was poor. You couldn't do it as an artisan or whatever. You no, I mean not. Yeah, I mean, if, if you were if you were a skilled artisan, you had a shot. Yeah. But like, yeah, if you had nothing, it was the way to go. This is the same is still true in yeah. the United States, right? This is why this is why poor kids go into the army. Uh, if you're coming out of high school, you're probably not going to college. Uh, it, I mean, if you're somebody who's not going on to college yeah. or you don't come from means, one of the most stable, most one of the most permanently stable ways in the history of civilization to advance a class, to advance to the middle class or advance to an upper class or advance socially and economically is military service. It always has been. Uh, so <coughs> that's why people still go into it today, which is why you have like these pr- uh, prosperous civilian families uh, who don't need that social advancement or have other opportunities. So we're like, why would we put our kids, why, or like when I was young, like, why would I join the army? Sure. I've got plenty of options. Like the army is not the thing for me. Um, but it would definitely be the thing for, you know, the kid sitting next to me who's not going on to college, who doesn't have the means to do that stuff. You talk about rising inequality, also breaking down of norms to a certain Oh extent. yeah. I mean, that's the big breaking. I think breaking down of norms is, that's a, yeah. Those those two things really right. define the book, and um, the story of Tiberius is so interesting to me. Because uh, again, so the land, the, what, what is the Latin term for the land grant, the attempted land redistribution? Ager publicus. Ager publicus. And, and it was the lex agraria. Lex agraria. Yes. The, the land so law. at that time, there's no king, there's no emperor, there's no anything like that. You've got consuls, you've got tribunes, you've got various classes below that, but it's specifically designed 
to not have one overarching body. That's the goal. Correct. Right. And so here comes Tiberius, and he argues, the machinations of it I'm going to attempt to get, but basically, if you acquire a large tract of land, but then you pull back too much for yourself, he said, well, that should be redistributed. Just the excess should be redistributed among the people because he could see the inequality coming. He mm-hmm. could tell that that was going to cause citizen unrest, also arguably just a crappy thing to do. And so for the sake of a more um, harmonious republic, he was going to try to make it happen. Very logical. It wasn't like you would think that it would be a major loss if you had the equivalent to 300 acres and you took 325. Okay, 25 acres, no big. But it became the start, at least the way that you're framing it, I think, of the breaking down of norms, that things that happened as a result of the Lex Agraria were way out of the norm, including violent bloodshed and all kinds of nasty stuff, just because this guy said, hey, maybe let's not be greedy assholes anymore. Yeah. <laughs> so there's there's a bunch of ar- arguing over, like, what Tiberius Gracchus's motivations were in all this is, like, one of the longest-running debates right. in Roman history. Um, so <coughs> And going all the way back, because there were there were partisans immediately after they died who yeah. were producing pamphlets that are like, oh no, he was great, and the other side's like, no, he was he was evil. Um, so the the crux of it, though, is that Roman culture, economically and socially, was being dislocated um, by this massive influx in wealth into Italy. Yeah. It was forcing the poor off of their land and allowing rich magnates to acquire more and more land. Um, This was, as we were just talking about, this had a major effect on their ability to conscript for the legions, right? Because you have people that don't qualify anymore to serve in the army because they've been pushed off their land. They're not landowners anymore. So part of it was, okay, maybe we can rebuild our ability to draft because that's, you know, that's the great, that's the great power of Rome. Um, but there was this other thing where when you redistribute land in one of these types of schemes, that Tiberius Gracchus would then become the patron of all of these new people that have gotten these little plots of land. And there were so many there many of the conservatives in the Senate, you know, their big thing was having a balance of power between the richest senatorial families, yes. right? The, among, within the oligarchy, at least within the senatorial oligarchy, that no one of us is going to be higher or better than any of the others. Anyway. Just at that class. It wasn't... There was, right, there was yeah, no, no they, they, lord, they lorded it over everybody. Yeah. Like, let's, <laughs> let's not kid ourselves. Like, the Republic was, I mean, by defi- by the definition of political science, a, yeah. an oligarchy. Um, so they didn't want any one group or faction to get out ahead of anybody else. And if they started to see that happening, then the other families would kind of gang up on that one mm-hmm. group until they batted it down. And so Tiberius Gracchus's Lex Agraria, which he was fronting for a couple of rich senators, um, really threatened the senatorial balance of power. So that's that, I think, is the source, really, of the intransigent uh, opposition to what he was trying to do. Of course it was farsighted. Of course it was logical. Of course it was necessary and reasonable and should have been done. And one of the questions that you want to ask is, well, why didn't they just all get together and do it together, right? So that no one person you know, gets extra credit than anybody else. But the Romans were fundamentally conservative people. They didn't, you know, we, we today in the West and in America, especially, right? Like the idea of progress as synonymous with good, right? Is it's in, it's inseparable that we don't even, 
we don't even quite, it's one of those, like, you don't, the fish doesn't realize the water. Rosa Parks is progress. The new iPhone is sort of progress, but not in the same way. Yeah, but just that we should be looking at the way things are today. Yeah. Looking at what can be made better, and then going and making those things better, Mm -hmm. right? The Romans didn't think like that at all, especially not the rich senators. They wanted today to be like yesterday, and they wanted tomorrow to be like today. So This sounds like one of the two political parties. Yeah, well, I... Uh, Which, whether that's good or bad, no, it just is. By nature, it's there's, a conservative there, party. There's actually, there, there are no conservatives in the United States. There's no such thing as conservatives in the United argument. States, right? We have, there is a right-wing party and a left-wing party. Yeah. There are no conservatives. Um, but, so, Tiberius Gracchus is upsetting things. Tiberius Gracchus is going to make things different. So, they start pushing forward opposition to what he's trying to do. And that creates this cycle of escalation where it's like Octavius <clears throat> is the tribune yep. that they more or less hire to veto the Lex Agraria. And then he just won't, Octavius won't pull the veto back. You know, if, if, the, if the bill goes to the people, if the Lex Agraria is presented for a vote, it's going to pass overwhelmingly. Because it represents the will of the people. Yeah, they, yeah. oh man, they love it. All, yeah, these, all these people want it. It is going... It and was, it's still a popular vote at that time. Oh, very, mu- very much. Yeah, yeah, there's, yeah, the Democratic, uh, even though it was an oligarchy, the... The democratic uh, force of the assemblies was still incredibly mm-hmm. strong at this point. Excuse me. Um, so, if it gets presented and if it's allowed to be voted on, it will pass. So now Octavius is standing there and saying, "Well, I just veto it." Right now, we're not allowed to do it. So then Tiberius is like, "Okay, well, I'm going to veto everything. Right? I'm going to veto all public business. I'm going to shut down the Temple of Saturn. Nobody's going to be able to take out a loan. Nobody's going to be able to sign a contract. The courts are going to be shut down." This makes the Senate come back around and roundly abuse him, Tiberius, as opposed to Octavius, who's actually the one who's kind of starting this yes. process of like, like when did when did things start to go downhill? It, you could say it was Tiberius not asking the Senate's permission before he presented the bill, but then Octavius brings the veto in, so Tiberius uh, puts his seal on the Temple of Saturn. So now you just have this escalation of uh, that leads. Ultimately, you know, spoiler alert, can't possibly spoil it because I've already, <laughs> He's re- I've already released the, uh, <laughs> the, the chapter, but it winds up with 300 people being massacred on the Capitoline Hill to stop this thing from happening. I found, I wonder if this is a stretch, but the thing that struck me immediately, and again, it depends on what you think the motivations are, because his opponents argued that he was trying to consolidate power and essentially make himself a king. Right. So, it, it struck me... The guy, the guy, it's funny, the guy who came to mind a little bit was George Soros, of all people. Okay. Because Soros okay. is not perceived as an encroaching monarch or anything like that, but it's perceived as this kind of dark force who's trying to do things counter to the will of people. Now, there's an argument to be made that if you're trying to push forward progressive causes, supposedly you're supposed to be helping more the most people, but Soros is a guy who has a ton of influence and a ton of money. So, on one side, you would say, well, this guy is in favor of, let's say, universal health care. Well, that helps everybody. On the other side, they'd say, all of the goals of this side of the political spectrum are null and void because they're being spearheaded by somebody who wants to have outsized influence. Immediately, that jumped up. Whether it's Soros or just the idea of, I hesitate to say liberal and conservative, he says it's left or right, but let's say the point of the left the way that the right vilifies the left is to say, this is an effort to consolidate power. It's an effort to make government bigger than it should be. 
I don't want that. You're encroaching on me. And the left says, no, no, I want to help as many people as possible. That is government's role. I just said, I know that, you know, you t it's more about, the book is talking more about what happens when the military gets out of whack, what happens when the norms break down, what happens when a, not dictatorship, but what happens when things become more consolidated in that way. But this side thing immediately jumped out at me. I don't know if I'm way off base or what, but that, that left, right, this is the will of the people. No, it's not. This is your will was immediately right. I mean, but that's a, that's a very common dynamic, yeah. right, in, in politics throughout history is you, whatever side you're representing, uh, you see or say to yourself, I'm doing these things for, for good and yes. proper reasons. My enemies, meanwhile, are cynical and are just saying whatever they're saying to grab power. And then you hop around to the other side, and those people are saying to themselves, uh, no, these are the good things that I'm trying to do, and it's you people over there who are cynical and just saying things to try uh, to accumulate power for yourself. And the answer really, I mean, is that it's always a mix of both. Yeah. Right. So th I think the closest people, people have asked me this too, like, oh, are there, are there ways that we can, um, uh, compare contemporary figures to Roman figures? And that's when any kind of analogy starts to break down, but it's a bit, the Gracchi are a bit like the Roosevelt's were Interesting. where they were, both the Roosevelt's were, hyper ambitious, right? They wanted to be number one. They wanted to be president. They wanted personal power, outsized influence, all of those things. But I think at the same time, they also recognized that the things that they could do to become popular and, and ride that uh, like a populare style, um, would also just be good for the country. So you can, you can simultaneously have, uh, sort of magnanimous, uh, ideas about what would, need to happen to improve the country while also recognizing that that's a viable path to power. Here's the new deal. Yeah. Here's Yeah. I mean the new, like writing that, uh, I mean, FDR, not like he even wrote on the new, like no. he, he made that up yeah. like on day one, like he sat down and was just like, let's just start making stuff up. <laughs> but the, that, that progressive style, that progressive, there was, there was very obviously at the end of the 19th century in the United States, uh, things were breaking down. Like the 1890s were a really terrible time in the United States, economically and socially. And there was a very clear opportunity to come in and say, we're going to fix this like laundry list of problems. Yeah. There's rats in the meat and we got kids, you know, working 18 hours a day and, uh, you know, people are living in slums. You know, we can, we can go through and improve sanitation and, and medical services. And I will have been the one that brought it to you. And so that then makes me, the powerful political figure that mm. I want to be. It's a marriage of the two. Yeah. Um, and I tend, I tend to see the Gracchi as basically in that mold, especially Gaius Gracchus. Uh, and then economic inequality, I mean, we get into that. We know what the effects are in America. We know what the potential effects are worldwide. How does it start to manifest itself in this period of, of Roman history? You know, you've got, as you said, you've got conscription, you've got people trying to get to the military, trying to make a better life for themselves. And then as the Senate tries to grab a little bit more for themselves and as things start to tilt, what is the net effect of that in terms of uh, how it affects the potential prosperity of Rome as a whole? Well, in the, the, the tricky thing here is, of course, that Rome itself as an entity uh, prospered after the, um, after the civil wars that destroyed the Republic. Yes. Right, so you do have this 
mass concentration of wealth uh, in the hands of it, it, and the, the, an important point here is that there's there was always a huge divide between rich and poor in Rome right there were always like rich senatorial families and then very poor landowners um, <clears throat> the problem that creeps in after the end of the Punic Wars is that it's increasing right so mo- there are now even more poor people and there are now even fewer like rich people and that created exploitable angst right exploitable anger uh exploitable you know just like things i used to have a farm and now i don't yeah. like what what is that about and so that opened up the path to um demagoguery if you want to call it demagoguery yeah. uh which created the political tensions that then wrecked the Republic. I mean, that's the thing. It, it created the conditions that forced factions against each other to the point where then they're beating each other with clubs and they're killing each other in the street, and then the whole Republic collapses. So what the end of it is, the material of prosperity of Rome was great. You know, they were still rich and powerful, and it was, you know, they, they wound up conquering the entire Mediterranean. But what happened to participatory government? Mm-hmm. What happened to anybody actually having rights, what happened to anybody's ability to criticize the guy, all that's out the window because now we're ruled by a a military dictator. Also sponsoring the podcast this week, it is Policy Genius. Listen, life insurance is a pain in the ass, let's face it. It's not the most fun thing in the world to talk about, but it's really important. And I've done it. I've had to buy uh, podcast. I've had to buy life insurance myself, and it was terrible. I didn't like it at all. It was an arduous process. I probably spent too much money. I didn't know what I was doing, and that was because it was before Policy Genius came along. And had I known that Policy Genius existed, I would have used Policy Genius. It's the place to go learn about life insurance and compare quotes from America's top providers. You can save up to forty percent on your policy, and you know it's not inexpensive to do this. So well worth your time. It's terrific. This kind of thing, this aggregator of top providers, a new thing to this industry. This policy genius has placed more than $5 billion in life insurance to date. Simple, user-friendly website. Very, very easy to use. So listen, if you've been putting off life insurance, you want to make sure you have the insurance that's right for you, you can check out policygenius.com today. Save up to 40% just by comparing policies. Quotes are free. No sales pressure. No hassle. Got to get into it. Policygenius.com. It's life insurance for the 21st century. And also, sponsoring the podcast this week, it is our old pals at SeatGeek. SeatGeek, a longtime sponsor of the Jonah Carey podcast, going back to the Grandland days and the Nerdist days, and now it's CBS too. Listen, you want to get tickets to anything, football, baseball, you want to go to baseball playoffs, you could do that. Basketball's coming up, hockey's coming up, you want to go to a concert, anything you possibly want, SeatGeek is the best place to buy and sell tickets to any and all events. I have used them for concerts, for hockey games, for baseball games, for lots of different events, and they've always done me right. Very cool color-coded map. They use technology and science and analytics, which I can appreciate. So you can see what the best seats are. So it might be, you know, you're going to a football game, maybe you're sitting on the 50-yard line, maybe it's in the end zone, whatever. You're at the baseball playoffs, you could be sitting in the bleachers, you could be sitting behind home plate or in the upper deck. SeatGeek will tell you what the best value is, and you can make your determination just like that. Super easy to do. And even better, listeners of the Joe and Carrie podcast can get $20 off of their first SeatGeek purchase. Very, very easy. You download the free SeatGeek app, enter the promo code Jonah today, J-O-N-A-H, and SeatGeek will get you $20 off of your first purchase at the point of purchase once you're done. Again, promo code Jonah for $20 off of your first SeatGeek purchase. 
Awesome. What do you have to lose? SeatGeek, thanks so much for sponsoring, as always. Well, and the other thing that happens, too, is once people have a beef, I'm losing my farm on this, on that, you start looking for scapegoats or you start looking for enemies. And what you find is, again, it's hard not to draw a modern corollary, although it was much more wide open then. It's a massive influx of people from other places. It's conquered slaves. It's free laborers coming in from, as you said, Spain, uh, Gaul regions, everywhere. Everybody just descends on Rome. Rome becomes this gigantic place full of immigrants. Mm -hmm. And you've got the people in power, including, I'm going to get his name. Oh, okay. Amelianus. Scipio Amelianus? Yes. He, you know, he gives that speech that he gave when he came back from conquering the Numenites? Numenites. Numantines. Numantines. Yeah, and he comes back and, and he says, oh, the unwashed masses and da da da. He can't recognize his audience because he. Things have changed. It's not the true blue Romans anymore. It's this influx of people. I'm wondering, you know, was that, was that going to happen regardless if that, that many, that big of an influx of people coming in from outside was going to create tensions both at the senatorial and highest levels and also among the people? Or was it stoked? Was it because the economic inequality and things are slowly starting to cascade and break down a little bit that now this becomes an even bigger point of contention? It, well, it, be, it became an even bigger point of contention. And this is another one of the outgrowths of uh, the mass amount of wealth that yes. is now being concentrated in the hands of the richer senatorial families is that before 146, Rome, like all of the ancient world is a slave society. Everybody has slaves. Um, Rome was a society that also had slaves, right? So they were, they were farmers, they were merchants, they're artisans, whatever. And there are also slaves around. After 146, you got all this money. You're buying up the slaves of the whole Mediterranean. Now Rome truly becomes a slave society yep. where the slaves are doing all the work in the fields. The slaves are doing the work in the, in the craft shops, like the, the skilled artisans that they're bringing in. Um, freedmen start to become like a major economic uh, part, which is just slaves who used to be slaves and now they're free, but yep. they still work for their patron. Um, and obviously all these people, this is a, a multi-ethnic Mix, as you say, they, they come from everywhere. It's Greeks, it's Spanish, it's slaves, it's North Africans, and they all match together. So that mag, the magnetic pole of Italy and Rome, because that's where the money all was, that's where the slaves all then congregated, and it it really did disrupt um, what it meant to be a Roman, what it sounded like to be a Roman, uh, what kind of religions you start getting all these like yeah. crazy new religions, and the you know the. The Senate would, you know, every 10 or 15 years would ban, or they would ban, you know, this mystic religion or that, you know, yeah. thing that's come over from Egypt. Like, what is this? This is ruining, you know, Roman moral fiber. And there became this very, very conservative, like, uh, it, like Italian, like, we are Italian, we are Roman. And if you're not Roman, you're somebody else. But by that point, there was so much intermixing and intermingling that what, what it meant to be a Roman was already changing. And then, Later in the book, you know, one of the biggest conflicts of the entire book is this tension between the Romans and the Italians, right? Where the Italians were not, even though Rome had conquered Italy way back during the Samnite Wars in the the 300s, the Italian communities were simply allies of Rome. They signed a peace treaty and 
and like we, we basically live under a Roman protectorate and we're inside the system, but we're not actually Roman citizens. And it, it was fine for a couple hundred years. They actually liked it because they didn't have to pay much in taxes yeah. and were mostly left to their own devices. And the Romans often did that, by the way, with other places. They would go out and they conquer somebody and say, okay, we're not going to slaughter all of you. You can live and your taxes won't be too bad. And yeah. you're, you're in the Roman Empire, but we got yeah, de- you. Yeah, so definitely. Like if you could, it seemed a little if, bit magnanimous. If, if, you, if you could live through the conquest. Right, um, not die and not if, be claimed if, as if, a slave. Yeah, if, yeah, if, you live, <laughs> if you live through the conquest and didn't get sold into slavery, yeah. life under the Romans was not okay. bad. They were, they, yeah. were, they were fairly... Uh, Fairly enlightened. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, you don't relatively. quite want to say that it's, they obviously had problems, but, um, uh, I've lost my train. I'm of so now. sorry. The Italians were, the Italians, <laughs> oh, the the Italians right. Yeah. Okay. So the relationship between the Italians and the Romans yeah. is that the Italians start to see that the benefits of being members of yeah. Rome, be, being full citizens of Rome outweigh the benefits of being outside of Rome. So they start to agitate. They start to say, look, we've been, we're, we're Italian. We're just like you. Uh, we've been a part of Rome's for 200 years. We make up two-thirds of the armies, right? Because that was the big thing. That was the only thing Rome wanted was for the Italian communities to provide conscripts for the legions. So the Italians are really the ones who are going out and conquering Spain and conquering Greece and conquering Syria. Like, it's Italian blood that is being shed. But then they come back and they're second-class citizens. They're, I mean, they're not even citizens at all. That's just a, you know, a way to put it. Um, so that conflict between the Romans and the Italians just starts to heat up because the Romans don't want to let the Italians into the system. And it's not just the rich senators at this point, uh, lower class Romans, the plebs urbana in Rome itself, or if you're a poor, if you're a poor scrabble farmer, you don't want to lose your own position inside the system. You bring in, you bring in the Italians, you're doubling or more, the total size of the population. What does that do to your own voice within the system? You, it just is necessarily muted. A lot of these battles over um, land redistribution, uh, what Tiberius Gracchus was doing, what his brother Gaius Gracchus did, and then further down the road, one of the big things was, okay, are these land redistribution deals going to be just for Roman citizens, or are all Italians going to qualify? So there's a very real sense that if we bring the Italians in, my opportunity as a poor Roman to get one of these land allotments, now there's simply more competition for it. So any chance that they could get, all Romans would kind of come together and agitate against uh, extending citizenship to the Italians. And it's not until chapter 9 that the Italians managed to get themselves integrated after a uh, massive, bloody civil war. But it seems like that would be the fatal flaw of any empire is just you can only grow so big. You're trying to control people who are not, you know, they might look different than you. They might have come from a different background than you. You're trying to bring them in. You could be as magnanimous as you want. They're going to agitate for more. You're going to want to keep yours. I mean, whatever. If we go through the, the Byzantine Empire, if we go through the Ottoman Empire, just it seems like there's only so much that you could bite off in general before an empire fails because you just can't bring everything under your umbrella and make it work. I mean, the fact that the Roman Empire existed for this long, given that, seems like a minor miracle to me. Well, it, it's, it's a thing that actually the Romans got pretty good at. Yeah. And this, this, is, this is a big thing. Is This period that I wrote about in the book is them intensely resisting the idea of extending citizenship to more than just the Romans right. or bringing more than just 
Romans into it. By the time you get into the imperial age, um, there was there was never like mass provincial citizenship, or there was not until Caracalla, like way in um, yeah. in the in the eighty two hundreds. But along the way, individuals could be granted Roman citizenship if you were a senior leader of your local town in Syria or in you know Cappadocia or in Greece, you would become a Roman citizen. A lot of these people became Roman citizens, and you start getting. By, by the imperial age, you get emperors that are coming from Spain, coming from North Africa, coming coming out of Syria. And by that point, by, by the imperial era, the golden age of the empire, the idea, Roman civilization, uh, with its laws, with its rights, with its contracts, with its roads, became very universally adaptable, right? It, it could really adapt to almost any ethnicity. And... The, the period that we were talking about with, uh, with Palmyra and Aurelian and the Sandy Koufax of Emperors, that whole thing, <laughs> is what brought us here together in the first place. Um, that was a batch of guys from, like, Croatia, huh. right? It was a bunch of Illyrians yeah. who were army officers. And, uh, oh, uh, there were a bunch of army officers who were coming from Croatia who wanted to save the empire from itself. And so they wound up being the reason the Roman Empire doesn't fall in the 200s AD is because basically a bunch of Croatians got together and saved it. So, so these are essentially, the, a lot of this book is has to do with the growing pains of it all, figuring out how to make this all work before you get to the point when you can bring other people to, to heal a little bit. Right. And then when you get to the very end of the empire, this is one of the things that if I had gone further in school, yeah. uh, that I would have investigated very specifically was in the 400s AD when Rome finally falls, right? Like the great fall of the uh, the great fall of the empire was you have these Germanic tribes that are starting to migrate in and rather than doing the thing that the Romans had done so well for centuries, which was integrate the next group of pop- the next population into the empire, they went back to this mentality of trying to resist it and say no, you're somehow different from us and so right. we don't want you to come in and that wound up breaking breaking the empire. There was a moment where the Goths and the Romans could have joined together. Yeah, they were about equal, right? Right before the sack of Rome, they were both pretty big deal. So Alaric's brother (laughs) married uh, the sister of the emperor. So she she was like a princess, essentially. So you have have the king of the Goths and a Roman princess who marry and have a kid. And if that kid had lived, then you have have this like Romano-Gothic infusion of energy and might have kept going for another five years and it might have kept going but instead uh the kid died because kids always die in the past and kids kids they don't i mean they just die it's half of them die it's so terrible one elemental question i wanted to ask you which related to the book related to modern times whatever but this is the the uh tortured analogy that i'm gonna try to give a tortured example we're in a healthcare debate right now Oh, this will be tortured. Yes, it will be. <laughs> but I'm just—I'm I'm not even going to talk about the details of the, of the bill or whatever, the attempt to, to make it happen. Um, and by the way, we will probably have a resolution of this by the time we get to this podcast coming up. But right now, there is a group of senators that is agitating to pass this bill, and they believe that they. There are many reasons why we could be cynical and say oh, we just want lower taxes, whatever. But what they say on the record is that we were elected to repeal the ACA. And we are going to do that. When you get to the brass tacks of this bill, it is unpopular because people, most 
people do not want to lose their health care or fear losing their health care. This is a very roundabout way to combine that and to combine what happened at this period of Roman history and to ask about a true representative democracy. In other words, you've got leaders, you've got a small group of senators, Roman senators, American senators, whatever, they're supposed to act on behalf of the will of the people. Can you rule that way? Well, there's going to be two questions. Let's start here. Can a true representative democracy exist, period? I think that's the first question to try to get to. Can can you make it work in a harmonious way? Um, That is a very big question. Yes, it is. Can a representative democracy actually function? Yeah. Can it work? Um, Yes, I do think that. Mm -hmm. I think that, first of all, there is, there is a, there's always going to be competing factions. And those factions are always going to say, we are the people. Like, we the people want this. And then there's another group of people that's roughly the same size that says, we are the people and we want this. And that's going to be a different thing. Um, So, a representative democracy can function if it has, you know, pretty stable institutions like we Yes. Hopefully, still have, and you know, I like Britain. You know, does a pretty good well. Does pretty well with this. Uh, you know, a lot of the the republics that have come out of the twenty in Europe in the twentieth century do a pretty good job with this, or at least having a, a place where those groups, those factions, can have an argument. There is some power that can be wielded, and things will happen if it gets too far out of whack, then another group can take over and their will can be imposed. So there's the problem is that there's not the people who have a single interest, or at least they don't know that they have a single interest, even if you might care to argue that uh, despite what you're voting for, what somebody is voting for politically, uh, what they're actually getting from that party might not be the best for them. You know, right. we, have, we have plenty of, we have, there's plenty of data against people quote-unquote, voting against their interests uh, for a variety of reasons. So can it work? Yeah, and I think we're doing, I think we do a pretty good job of it. It's, you know, it's a lot of blind stumbling forward. It's never going to be, like, great. It's always going to be very ugly. Uh, But I think we're, I think, yes, it can be done. And then I guess beyond that, what I want to ask, Lex Agraria is a pretty good example of this, but, I mean, we could use this healthcare bill, we could use whatever we want. There will be times when the ruling body, whether it's the Senate, whatever it is, is going to vote, is going to get something done that the majority of people disapprove of. Right. To me, that's not always necessarily a negative. It could be that the majority of people are horrible racists, but here comes the Civil Rights Act because, you know what, we need to get our shit together and that's fine. I'm wondering how... hmm. Is the role of an elected body to do things in the public good, or is the role just to represent 50.1% of the population? I, I personally believe that your role as a representative leader, somebody who's been elected to go serve in government, is to represent the country, okay. the entire country. Whatever the polity is, uh, you are certainly not there just to service your own people. Now... On a practical level, is that what happens a lot of the time? Of course. But, you know, if, if I was going to step back and say, like, what, what should happen? What should you be doing? Yeah, if you're elected president, you're the president of everybody. That's how it works. And if you're not the president of everybody, now you start having those 
allegedly neutral instruments of power being used only on behalf of one segment of the population as opposed to ruling sort of on everybody's behalf. So I've always thought that you do have some obligation if you win by 50.1 to say to the other 49, we know you're still there. We know you're still here. We know you still have the things that you want. So, you know, you lost, so you're not going to get everything, but like, you know, one, like, we'll give you, we'll give you one or two things, you know, you can, we'll we'll at least keep it in mind. We won't just radically run this thing in a completely opposite direction. And, you know, when it comes, the, the big thing is like, it's when, it's not just when the people are against something, it's when the voters are against something, right? Because that's, that's really like the unit of, of, of politics, right? It's not just the people, half, half the country doesn't even vote, right? So, and, and in, uh, you know, in old style British, uh, British parliamentary politics, you know, you're talking about, you know, 3% of the people has, has the vote or 5% yeah. of the people have the vote. Um, what's really surprising about all this healthcare nonsense is that, yeah, it's like 18% of the voters support this. I've never seen, I, and I can't help, it's reverse demagoguery. You know, demagoguery is playing nakedly to the people and promising them things yes. that are really popular as a as a path to power. And these guys are promising things that nobody wants them <laughs> to do. And they're like, but we have to do it. We promised yeah. that we would do this. Who did whole, you promise? We, would, what we promised we would do this horrible thing that nobody wants us to do. Like it's it's the most strange it's we it's it's a really like through the looking glass. Uh, moment in American politics that they just keep saying that they have to do this thing that nobody wants them to do because they promised somebody that they would do. And really what it is, is it's, um, they, they spent eight years under Obama convincing their voters that Obamacare was like the end of the American Republic, that it was, you know, this is basically, this is it, you know, this is, you know, we might have won the Cold War, but they, you know, they they snuck in this like sleeper Hammer agent, yeah this, yeah, this sleeper agent who's you know going to complete the communist conquest of the United States, and then they came out the other side, and you know, Hillary Clinton was supposed to win the election, not Donald Trump, so they were never the bill was never supposed to come due on any of this stuff. You know, they were never supposed to uh, they were never supposed to actually have to deal with it, and then Trump won, and now they have to what fulfill a promise that was essentially they you know, to use strong language that they, they conned a bunch of people into thinking that this, this thing needed to go. And then, so those people are like, okay, well you said it had to go or it was the end of the Republic. Right. I mean, that's what you said. That's what you said the stakes were. And so how can you now not do it? Even though only like 18% of the people or whatever actually want them to do it. It's a, we're very, very strange times. Don't care. (laughs) Very strange times. Um, there are so many other points that I wanted to get to from the storm before the storm, uh, including voting rights. But I yeah. encourage people to, because that's re- very relevant. Today. Yeah, the very whole, the whole back third, the whole back third of the book is a fight over voting rights, which is to me the as much as uh, health care and, and racism and everything else. Voting rights to me is the element. Oh yeah, well they were going to do thing. A, they were going to do a thing in um, when they when they finally did when the when the Italians more or less won the social war. Yeah, uh, and they were accepted as citizens of Rome. The Senate still tried to play this game where Roman voting. Roman voting was really weird. You, you were a member of one of the thirty-five tribes, correct? And your third one of your one tribe had one collective vote, 
right? And so then you would vote until a majority of the tribes. That's how Tiberius was attempting to oust his opponent. Yeah, so, so it's, it's like it's 18 votes, yeah. right, to like... And after 17, he's like, are you sure? Yeah, are you he's sure, like, I'm sure. sure. And then he's gone. Yeah, so it's, it's a bit like, you know, it's kind of like electoral college stuff where it's yeah. like, you know, it's a unit. Um, well, the electoral college is a flawless institution, so that's... Yeah, no, it's... Yeah, <laughs> electoral <laughs> anyway. college is an amazing piece of work. Um, but what they were going to do with these new Italian citizens is put them into 10 new tribes who would always vote last. So, if voting only proceeds until a majority has been reached, the likelihood that any of these ten new tribes, where all of the Italians are, would ever even have a chance to vote, would maybe like once a generation yeah. would something be contentious enough that the Italians would actually have a say. And the Italians, like, they picked up on this immediately. Uh-huh. They were like, no, this is not, no, this is not actually how it's going to work. You're not going to bring me in as a citizen and then try to try to bury me at the back of the line. And, you know, the, the later battles of the Civil War were mostly about whether or not the Italians would be distributed evenly in the 35 tribes or whether they would be buried at the back of the line. So uh, people need to check out The Storm Before the Storm. That's it's true. fantastic. Yeah, it is. true. And, and like I said, there's so... <laughs> honestly, and there, there are many other points and lessons. I've got a phone full of questions. But... Before we finish this podcast, we have to talk a little bit about Seattle sports. Oh, sure. This is very important. Yeah. Oh, yeah. This is the whole we're, we're, This we're is a, a flawless segue. <laughs> Maybe the best one in the history of broadcasting. Um, speaking of screw jobs. Speaking of screw jobs, Seattle, Seattle Sonics? Sonics and the Montreal Expos. <laughs> yeah. I, you know what? It's dumb because I have a really sharp Seattle Sonics t-shirt. And you know what? I think it's actually in my bag. I'm going to wear it on this trip that I'm going on. Okay. But I chose to wear a Tim Raines shirt because that's how I am. But, um. I feel like we're brothers in arms. The idea of losing a franchise, it galvanizes people. I've talked to Hartford Whalers fans. I've talked to fans of whatever. But at the same time, you can tell me how you feel about this, but Seattle resisted, right? They didn't. They said, we're not going to give you your $700 million. We're not going to do this. We're not going to do that. And that led to what happened. And maybe it's because I'm an adult and not a child anymore, and I sort of understand the economics of stadium stuff and whatever. But I sort of feel proud. That that's what happened in Montreal. Do you feel that way at all about Seattle? Or are you just like, man, I wish I had Sean Kent back. No, no, I I have really it's it's two tracks. Yeah, right. So on the one hand, I'm extremely angry. Yeah, you know, at the NBA for everything that they did. Yeah, um, and I'm sad that the Sonics went away, and I want them back. But on the other hand, what is it that forced the issue? It was that they were coming in. I mean, Key Arena had been renovated in like 1994, right? It was for a significant for, amount of money. For a significant amount of money at their behest. Key Arena was a great place to watch a basketball game. Mm-hmm. It was I and I know some of the background of this that it wasn't it was not a great deal for the Sonics, right? They didn't have a great lease agreement with Key Arena. But the big contention was that like there weren't enough um, of the boxes, like the luxury boxes, right? All of those all those things that the NBA now is going to stipulate yeah. that you have in an arena. And they came to Seattle, and they demanded all of this stuff, and then they tried to emotionally blackmail the city, which is what these people do, is they emotionally blackmail the city, and inevitably the city caves, and winds up taking on a huge boondoggle yep. of a project and screwing over their taxpayers and doing all this and that. And Seattle did say no. And there is something absolutely that is good and noble yep. about that. And they called that bluff. And then the NBA called their bluff, and, you know, they sold the team. I guess the team had already been sold by that point, but, uh, yeah, yeah and, then they, and then they took them. And now we don't have the Sonics anymore. What's interesting, though, is that now there's a little bit of noise about hockey, maybe, or basketball, maybe even hockey, 
and that the early rumblings are, whether it's like a Hanson, the hedge fund guy, or mm-hmm. whether it's somebody else, if a sport or sports were to come back slash get to Seattle in the first place, maybe the balance would be different. Maybe it would be mostly privately financed if there was a new facility. We don't know. There's all kinds of this and that. We'll see. My ex-colleague Jeff Baker writes brilliantly about this, and other people do too, but you wonder if this might end up being a hiatus of basketball, and then you get basketball back, and the terms are much better than they were, and as a socially conscious citizen, you could feel good about a guy dunking on the break, and also about taxpayers not getting hosed. Right, and that's what you would hope. Yeah. Um, But, you know, Hanson, I believe, had a pretty good deal on that, you know, in in that vein, right? Like, not just a straight, like, hey, King County, give us a billion dollars and we'll bring a basketball team back. You know, he had a a lot of private financing. It looked like a pretty decent deal. And then they had a deal to buy the Sacramento Kings. And what did the NBA do? The NBA came in and squashed it. And the city of Sacramento, led by Kevin Johnson, a lovely human being. Oh, lovely human being. uh, Basically said, here's our city's money. You can have it. Yeah, and this is, again, like... It's only it's only been in the last couple of years that I've been able to like watch basketball again. Um, Interesting, because I am so it's just so mad. It's a about, job. about the lies because it was it was built it was a it was a wild pack of lies yeah. that everybody was telling everybody else. Um, then we so we lose the team, we get screwed. Um, they're gone, whatever. Then everybody gets together and organizes a return of basketball to Seattle, and the NBA comes in and kills that, too. And you just, how can I, I, I could not, I, I had a very difficult time watching basketball, knowing that the NBA as an institution was, like, benefiting in any small way from me being emotionally invested in their sport. Do you have um, particular animus toward the Thunder? Because I don't have it towards the I animus. don't have it towards the Thunder. Okay. No, and certainly not the, like, not like fans in Oklahoma City. Like, right, Of course right. not. It's the ownership group, yeah. of course, because those horrible. people just came in and lied and lied and lied. And David Stern, like it, it helps that David Stern is not around because I bear personal animus uh, towards yes. David Bud Stern. Bud same thing. Yeah, yeah. you know, I, I bear. Oh, sorry, Hall of Famer Bud. Hall Seelig. of Famer Bud Selig. You know, I yeah, I live outside Milwaukee now. You can have you been to the Bud Selig experience? I have not, but I went to County Stadium in the nineties because I used to go on road trips with my buddies, and it was a lovely place. And we were sitting in a section that had all. Uh, uh, like a Harley gang, like a bunch of old dudes with beards wearing Harley jackets, and also Miss Wisconsin sat next to us, and it was hilarious and insane. And then in the seventh inning, Bud Selig was in the stadium because he was only the, I think, interim commissioner, or maybe the new commissioner, but he was still owning the Brewers. He comes out of his box, and everybody in the stadium chanted, Bud, 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 during the seventh inning stretch. Yeah. Bud wow. Bud Selig, who stole the Seattle Pilots as That's well. That's correct. Yeah. He did so, indeed. I mean, but they were, but they were a failing... I mean, they the Seattle Pirates. Yeah, Jim Bowden, not much else. Yeah, they failed, and like Montreal was set up to fail. Like I think we know that. Yes. Um, well, they had crappy ownership, is really what they're down. The, the end of it, they were set up to fail. Yeah. But they never had real owners. That's a lot one of it. the things that really gets my goat about the Sonics is that it's not like they were the St. Louis Browns or the Boston Braves or some. No, it was a, good, or, a healthy yeah, franchise. It was a healthy franchise. They they'd been like kind of mediocre for a couple years. And the Peyton Kemp years were great. And the, yeah, so they, they had this great... They drafted Durant! Yeah, they, they had <laughs> Kevin Durant! <laughs> I know! Drafted. Who weighed 120 pounds and was a badass! Basketball team has Kevin Durant! <laughs> and then they steal the team. That team was basically just going to be whatever the Oklahoma City Thunder turned into, which was one of the premier teams in 
the West. Um, that's where the Sonics were headed. Yeah. They had to, they had a couple years where they were like pretty you know sub mediocre as they move as they transition. Benjamin era. Yeah, <laughs> God, and then they get Kevin Durant and then they steal the team, and I just I like I'm actually like physically like angry right now. I am glad that I have aroused the cockles. I have two more questions. I want to ask you. I'm going to ask you the Mariners. It's going to be one of the last questions. We still have the Mariners. So that's the longest playoff drought of any team that is currently in existence. However, the team that I root for uh, doesn't exist. Is it officially the longest drought? It is the longest drought because the Blue Jays were the longest drought and then they just made the playoffs. They they hadn't made it since 93. The Mariners haven't Uh, made it, of course, since Well, we make make the Blue Jays a very nice home whenever they come to (laughs) That's that's very true. That's very true. really roll out the red carpet for those people. Do you find being a Mariners fan... Torturous these days? Or are you like, oh no, we we got Nelson Cruz. I feel okay about it. We'll make the playoffs eventually. Oh, this year was this year has been rough because they're so they were supposed to you know be good. Yeah, and this year they were supposed to be good. Um, but last year's team, you know, the 2016 Mariners were you know one of my favorite Mariner teams that <laughs> we've ever had. Yeah, right. And I mean, like in the history of the team, you know, I'm 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 pretty well blessed because you know I grew up on the. You know the Kingdom, you know oh, the yeah. 1980s Mariners was like that's when I that's when I was raised on the team, and, and then so, 95 was awesome. Yeah, so I got to go through that. Like I was 15 years old in 1995, so oh, that's wow. like that's like the sweetest yes. of sweet spots to be like an insanely intense Mariners baseball fan, and then have them do something like that too. Because it wasn't just that they made the playoffs for the first time; it was like this insane magical run. Yeah. And then they were they were a really good team for seven years. So I was I was there and intimately. You know, watching on a daily basis, like the golden age of Mariners baseball. So I have that all to fall back on. The last decade has been just kind of grueling. Yeah. But last year's team was, they were really cool and good. You know, like Robinson Cano is great. Nelson Cruz is great. Kyle Seager is great. James Paxton is great. Yeah, I love Big Maple, you know? Like, uh, it was a good team. And they just, they fell like, you know, they fell like one game short. Yeah. You know, that was it. Uh, And then the expectation was this year they would pick up where they left off. I think I might have picked them. Yeah, I picked them to make the playoffs. Yeah, I mean, I was hoping. Uh, but as it turns out, they were just, you know, I think they were like four games under 500 at this point. The, you know, and yet still not really I, mathematically. I it's so, bit, it's so weird. Like the second, wild, the second wild card, I just, I'm so ambivalent about it. Um, Twins are totally going to win the World Series or something now, though. Well, great. Twins, Rockies. Oh, oh, that'd be that'd be fine. Oh, man, I wouldn't have to that'd leave home. But this this business where like teams like the Mariners who are four games under five hundred who are still technically yeah. sort of like fighting for a playoff spot it's like I, yeah is this really how it's supposed to be but it hasn't always been that way there no, was a couple year, years ago the year, Cardinals year, Pirates and Cubs all won like yeah this, plus, this year is and, very weird but, yeah you know just I mean even as a fan of the Mariners I'm like come on we should not <laughs> we should I should not still be emotionally invested in a team that is four games under five hundred you mentioned the year the year fifteen the year that I turned fifteen was the year that the Montreal Expos acquired uh, possibly the greatest left-hander in the game at that time, Mark Langston from the Seattle Mariners. Sure, in exchange for? Brian Holman. Yes, he was the get. No, Gene Harris was the get. Oh, Brian Holman was the... Oh, well, we we were really happy about Brian Well, Holman. Harris threw harder. Holman had the big curveball. Right. Either way, both either, of those two guys way. overshadowed yes. a lanky fellow who couldn't hit the side of the barn named Randy Yes, Johnson. yes, the, ta- the, the, that, the weird creature that they brought in. Yes. And Nolan Ryan and Tom House supposedly brought him to heel and said, hey, man, just stop being nervous. Or whatever it is that they did. Right. And it worked. Yes. He was good. Yeah, he was phenomenal. And I got to watch, you know, the, the glory days of Randy Johnson. To be able to watch that every five games 
for your team. I mean, like, like the Mariners have never won the World Series. They've never been yeah. to the World Series. Yeah. Like, there's plenty to complain about. But like, we man, we've had some really. Aaron Griffey, this is generational had, you've players. We've had some really great players. Edgar Hall Famer. Edgar Hall Hopefully. Of course, I got to watch Edgar Martinez hit every... I got to watch Ichiro hit every day. Brett Boone with, like, max steroids. Brett Boone on steroids is one of the most fun Bat players. Flip up as yeah. he field 470 feet, no problem. He's yeah, like, five he's, he's like, he did this, like, Hoover vacuum routine out at second base. <laughs> like, just balls couldn't get by him because, yeah, he was supercharged. But Randy Johnson, right, when he finally put it all together... Um, you know, like 90, 93 is yep. when he started like really figuring it out. And then 94, 95, there was, there were days where you would, you would, he would step up to the mound and you were like, this is it. This is going to be the day that Randy Johnson strikes out 27 people yeah. and, and sets that record. There's and, never and, been anybody like and that. Does, and does one of the most amazing things yep. in the history of the sport, which is when somebody finally strikes out all 27 batters, which were we're maybe getting like more and more to that, but there were days where he would st- he would strike out the first three guys, then the next three guys, then the next three guys, and you're like, oh, this is it. This is it. This, <laughs> this is the moment I've been waiting for. The 27 up, 27 down, Randy Johnson strikeout perfect game. It, di- it didn't happen, but God, that was that guy. Is he sad. doesn't get the acclaim, I think, that Griffey and those guys got, even though he had a, a more valuable career by the numbers and just re- unbelievable. I, th- I think he was, I actually, and I also believe I said this in the history of Rome because I went to, um, I had to take a week off the show when he was approaching 300 wins. Because oh. he was playing for the Giants. Giants, that's right. And the Giants had, were coming to Seattle, and there was a real possibility that he was going to be, like, in Seattle to try to get yeah, yeah. win 300. So I am on record as saying that I believe that Randy Johnson was the greatest left-handed pitcher of all time. And I don't care what you say about Lefty Grove. I agree, <laughs> and I think that he's top four pitchers ever, yeah. along with Maddox, Clemens, and Walter Johnson, I and Satchel Page. Well, that's interesting. Don't forget Satchel. We don't have time for that, but Satchel, that's Satchel, Don't forget Satchel, Satchel Page is the, I think, the correct answer for like. Satch is an interesting was, one, and as a great, huge, I have a Bob Kendrick was, podcast coming out soon. And the, okay. I mean, he's, I'm, I've, all, I'm I've, all in. Satchel Page is basically my answer for greatest pitcher of all time. I like that very yeah, much. Yeah, I don't know who else you would want. <laughs> we're gonna have, we're gonna do a second podcast one day. We're gonna talk more about Satchel Page. Okay. I, have, I have one more question for you, Mike, which I do at the end of every podcast. Is I always ask the guest. For a life tip, a nugget of wisdom, I meet you in a bar. Hi, I'm Mike. Hi, I'm Jonah. Jonah, what are you all about? I'm all about Simpsons quotes and poutine and or whatever. This is my uh, personal philosophy. And then I ask you, Mike, if you had to describe yourself, what's your personal philosophy? What's your thing? Could be serious. It could be not serious. What would you say? Um, I think that there are three components to success. Okay, three things. Three things that make it so you can succeed. It's uh, it's talent, right? You got to have some kind of native talent. You got to work hard. Yeah, you got to work hard. Talent alone is not going to do it. And you have to get you have to get lucky, right? So there's luck, right? Those are the three things. If you're ever going to make it, talent, hard work, and luck. You have no, literally, no control over luck, right? That's the whole point of luck, right? You don't have any control over luck. You really don't have any control over talent. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're not at genetic engineering to that point quite yet. You know, we'd, we'd all be baseball players if we could hit a curveball, uh, but instead we're sitting in a dermatologist's office, you know, chatting <laughs> about history and baseball because none of us can probably hit a curveball. Um, or you, you wanted, like, you want to, like, play in the NBA, right? But you yeah, just, like, I was a basketball just, player. But when you were little, like, I was terrible. I was okay. Yeah, you, don't, you just don't have the talent. So you no. don't really have control over your talent. So it's it's helpful to identify what your talent is. But of, so of those three things, the only thing that you have any kind of control over is how hard you work. 
So that's really the thing that you need to focus on. Your talent is going to be there. The luck, if it comes, will come. If it doesn't, it doesn't. You should just keep your head down and do the work if you want to be successful. You want to be a musician. You want to be an athlete. You want to be a writer. You want to be a professional history podcaster. You know, whatever it is, it's you're going to have to work hard at it, and that's the only thing that you have control over. So work hard, and the rest will hopefully fall into place. I like this, especially for the aspiring history podcasters out there. Yes, yeah, so if you're an aspiring Roman history podcaster. Get off my lawn! <laughs> yeah, you're, no, you don't belong! Yeah, I've, I I've, I've, I've sprayed a few I've sprayed a few people with the hose. You do what you got to do. Yeah. Uh, Mike, this has been a real, real pleasure. The Storm Before the Storm. It's awesome. October 24th, right? October 24th. You can also you can pre-order it now uh, Yes, do pre-order. So for people who don't understand the pre- how the bestseller list works, right? if you're going to get this book anyway, which you should, just pre-order. So I wrote the first book that I wrote became a New York Times bestseller. Did it sell that many copies? Not really. Did I convince people to pre-order it? Yes. Yes, that's, that's, a, a, yes, yes, yes. that's it. That's the secret. That's all you have to do. So if you're going to buy it, just get it before because that counts toward the first week of sales right. on the New York Times bestseller list. So, And Mike is going to sell a zillion copies anyway. But specifically, do a pre-order and then everybody will be good to go. Yeah, pre-order the book, you guys. Because I want to be able to describe myself as award-winning history podcaster and New York Times bestselling author, Mike Duncan. Damn that's, right. That's just my nakedly selfish goal in life. I love it. But it's for the good of the people. But it's for like the, the good of the people. And come on, I wrote the book for you. You know, If you're going <laughs> to buy the book and like the book, you might as well help me with my little vanity. Uh, Mike, you're a peach. Thanks so much. Okay.